We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. And today we're going to get into Daniel chapter 11 and uh, a couple other spots kind of in between. want to do a closer look at this end time figure who apparently is a human being, a man, and he is the antithesis of Jesus, to break it down. So everything that Jesus is, turn it around, turn it upside down, look at the inverse, and you have a pretty good idea of the kind of human being we're dealing with. The Antichrist is mentioned several times in the New Testament. Um, Paul mentions him in, uh, in a couple of different places, um, or at least one, as I'm thinking about it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is probably the most famous place where he makes a reference to a man who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, verse 4. So the question is, you know, where does Paul get this idea of this man who opposes God, who exalts himself against God, who opposes any God and every God? Where did Paul get this idea? Well, that prophecy began somewhere else, it began in the pages of Daniel. And we've, we've taken a look at a couple of chapters in Daniel. We started out in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue that has a head of gold, a chest of silver, midsection of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, look, you're the head, and then the guys coming after you, are that's the, the silver chest. And then after that, there's going to be an empire that rules the, the world, that is the bronze. Then one that crushes everything, that is the iron. And then the iron and clay, there'll be a mixture of the, the, the seed of man with iron. Daniel describes, interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And then, that's, that's, that's Daniel chapter 2. We also looked at Daniel chapter 7, which again, there is a, um, a prophecy regarding the string of empires that would begin in Nebuchadnezzar's day and end with the return of the king, one like the son of man. The string of empires was pretty straightforward. So the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. The chest of silver is King Cyrus and Persia. And then after that, the midsection of bronze is Alexander the Great and Greece. And then after that, you have the Roman Empire as the legs of iron. 
And then finally, right at the very end, when the kingdom of God comes like a stone and smashes the empires at their end, at their feet, the kingdom of God smashes them. The final empire is a continuation of the iron and a mixture of clay. So right at the end, the Roman Empire continues through, but right at the end, there is a mixing of iron and clay, mixing of the mechanical with the biological, right? You've got this transhumanist reality playing out in the statue that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. So since Nebuchadnezzar, we've had Babylon, Persia, we've had Greece, then we have Rome, and we're still living in that Roman Empire period from God's perspective. And then now right at the end, we're starting to see the rise of transhumanism, the rise of those who believe evolution, the next step in evolution is a technological one, that we will guide our own evolution using technology. It is a complete and total deception, but that's what people actually believe. They believe if they can mix their clay, their potter's clay of their human frame with circuitry, they will uh, somehow transcend the human condition and enter the realm of the gods. It's the same lie they believed when they built the tower of Babel. Same thing. So we have that, that string of empires, right? Okay. Then we, we fast forward into Daniel seven, which we talked about in the, the, the last episode. And you have that same string of empires, except you have Rome in its final and ultimate, uh, version in Daniel 7. So when we see that, we see the legs of iron, which is the final fourth beast, we see it at its very end. We see it at its transhumanist. When humans combine the biological with the technological, with the mechanical, when human beings do that, we will create this final beast that has iron teeth and bronze claws, this mechanical beast. And upon this mechanical beast, there will be one who is known as the little horn. And we, we talked a, a bit about the little horn. Now, the little horn is, I believe, he is the ultimate expression of fallen Adam. Okay, we get this idea that the Antichrist is like this uh, cartoonishly satanic guy, like a like a Anton LaVey type uh, cartoonish Satanist. Uh, that's not what's happening. What's happening is you have two representatives before the um, before the throne in Daniel seven. You have um, you have the little horn speaking great things, and then on the other side you have the one like coming in on the clouds one like a son of man. Those are the two figures, little horn and one like the son of man. So in both of those figures is represented two types of humanity. You are found in either one camp or the other. You are either part of Jesus and his kingdom that goes lasts forever and will never end, or you're a part of this other thing, a guy, I should say, guy, 
who is uh, speaking great things, and whatever beast he rode in on is now burning in the fire, and then he is he himself is also sentenced to burn, to be consumed. Those are the two representatives before the throne of God, the son of man and the little horn. And so Daniel gives us a pretty good glimpse at who this little horn is. There's, there's, and it doesn't just happen in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, the more um, diverse and more complex and, and richer a more fuller picture of the little horn comes later, especially in Daniel 11. I want to jump into that, but before I do, I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing on his word because we need his guidance. Lord, we come to you and we look to you. We bow before you. You are the Lord. There's no one like you. You are the king and all of creation bows before you. The saints adore you. The saints worship and praise you, God. All of, all, of, all of your creation, all of your redeemed, God, worship you. And we just worship you in this moment. We worship you in your word. And we just thank you for your spirit and how you guide us in the truth. We ask you, Jesus, humbly but confidently in your mercies that you would lead us in the truth, in your word, that no one would become dependent upon man, but all would become dependent upon the Son of Man, that all would have that direct relationship, that direct knowing of you, that you speak directly to them through your word, as you minister to your saints, your people, even through this podcast, God. We give you this podcast. We give you this episode. We just ask you to inspire it, and, and fuel your saints, feed your sheep with, the, with your word, God, your bread from heaven that comes from you through your word. We love you, Jesus. We give you this time. Amen. So, like I was talking about in some previous episodes, the book of Daniel isn't primarily about eschatology. You might think it, w- it was, and I kind of thought that way too, but no, actually, Daniel is primarily about Daniel and his three friends in Babylon and the experiences they have, prophetic experiences that create um, incredible drama and um, um, dangerous situations where the Lord comes through and delivers his people time and time and time again. Uh, it would be a misrepresentation to say that the book of Daniel is primarily about the end times, because even a lot of the prophecies that are in Daniel don't pertain to the end times. There are prophecies about other kings, wicked kings, kings like Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a, uh, I think he was a Seleucid, a king that uh, arose from the um, split up empire of Alexander the Great. Um, just just for one example, and there's 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 some pretty significant prophecies regarding Antiochus Epiphanes, and I'm I'm not approaching Daniel as if it all pertains to the end times because the only pieces that I've been able to find so far, and and I'm still learning, so bear with me, are the prophecies about empire that we see in Daniel chapter two. Um, the prophecies about the little horn in Daniel chapter seven 
And then there's a, there's a little spot in Daniel 9. And then what we're going to spend most of our time on today is Daniel 11.36. And I know I can zero in on 11.36, on Daniel 11.36. There's a prophecy right before it that I believe doesn't have anything to do with the, it. It may have something to do. I don't know. But like literally you move a verse ahead, verse 35, and it's a prophecy about somebody else. So how can I be confident that Daniel eleven thirty six and following is really about the Antichrist and not about some other guy? Well, I can be confident about it because Paul was confident about it. He was confident enough in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to, to basically um, quote this prophecy right here in Daniel 11.36. So Paul's, when Paul read Daniel 11.36 and following, he said, that's the guy right there. He identified the guy as clearly as you possibly can in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He was borrowing from this passage. He didn't borrow from the passage before it. He didn't borrow from the passage before that. He, he, took the pa- he took the passage from verse 36 and following and said, here's the guy I'm warning you about. He's coming. Paul said, this is clear enough. This is a clear enough prophecy, and I'm certain by the Holy Spirit of God to, to write it to you and say with confidence, this is the guy. Paul didn't have it wrong. Paul had it right. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so his words are the truth. So so Paul understood something about this little horn, and he knew that the prophecies of the little horn started in verse 36. I just say that because it's 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 hard because when you just jump in to a section like this and say, okay, I'm just going to start in verse 36. I'm going to kind of ignore the verses before it. Um, I don't like to do that. It's a little bit jarring, but I can do this in the, I can, I can do exactly that in this prophetic text because these are a series of prophecies that sometimes tie together and sometimes they do not. But the prophecy laid out in verse 36 was potent enough and clear enough in Paul's mind to absolutely under the power of the Holy Spirit and inerrantly say, this little horn is the one who will come right before Jesus returns. It is the prophecy of Daniel 7. It's the prophecy of uh, Daniel eleven thirty six. I just wanted to, I want to spend a little bit of time because I, uh, I do, I feel a little bit guilty not reading the text before, um, because I, I like the context. But here, these are, these are a series of prophecies. So the prophecies in verses 35 and, and, and preceding that, that is a different prophecy than what begins in 1136. So that's where I'm going to zero in on who is this guy, what's he about, um, and try to, try to just... just um, Understand from God's word, like who who are we looking for here? What's he like? Um, what are the warning signs? We want to be in the light. One of the things that Paul says in First uh, Thessalonians chapter five is he basically says, "Hey, we're not to be like those who don't see this thing coming. We're not to be the, like the ones who fall asleep and who are drunk 
in the in the night who um who sleep and drink in the dark basically he he says you are of the light and that this day isn't going to overcome you like it's going to overcome them he says you're going to be awake and you're going to see it these guys are going to be drunk and asleep in the night but we don't do our things in the darkness we do our things in the light we're not children of the night we're children of the day we're children of the light we work and we act in light not in darkness so what does the bible actually say here in verse 36 we have our ideas of who we think the antichrist is we have you know some mixture at least i do maybe I should just speak for myself I mean, traditionally some mixture of you know hitler and uh i don't know some sort of um Satanist type guy. Somebody who walks around in a black cape, basically. But I think it would be best when whenever you're coming before God in his word is just to say, Hey, what am what have I what am I taking for granted? Should I be taking that for granted? What do I really believe about this and why do I believe it? It, Are my beliefs grounded in the word of God? Because that is the only safe place to incubate your truth is in the word of God. The truth is in and through the word of God. It comes to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the the Spirit opens our, our minds opens our hearts, anoints us to receive from the Lord, and the Lord plants his seed in in the form of his word. And so we don't want to put up barriers to God's word. Like if God wants to speak to us in a certain way, we don't want to say, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't believe that. Or no, 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 uh, no, that's not what my, that's not what um, my, my youth group teacher taught me. Now, if, if the Lord wants to sit down and teach you from his word, it's best just to submit and just go, Lord, how do you want to, how do you want to speak? What, what do you want to say? How do you want to, how do you want to craft what I believe? How do you want to cultivate me in the truth? How do you want to expose me to your light? And however that, that light comes in, give me the grace to receive it and walk in it and believe it. We shouldn't be reading our Bibles hoping that, or hoping, pretending that it justifies everything we already think. If we're reading the Bible and finding it how wonderful it is to have your have our ideas justified, then we're not really reading the Bible. God is never changing. He's immutable. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He does not move. He does not change. So when we come to God in his word, we should probably humble ourselves a little bit and go, you know what? I don't really know that much. I'm not really that smart. I really haven't got it all figured out. And Lord, I need your help to lead me in the truth. That's probably the best way to come before God in his word. Much better than 
God, show me what I already know is true. And if you can just make me feel really good about what I already believe, that's fantastic. Because I know that whatever I read from here on, I've already read it. And I already know what it means. And it already fits into my perfect world. Okay, so if, if that's... If that's our response, that's called pride, and God resists pride. So we want to humble ourselves. So when we have these ideas about whatever, it's best just to lay them down and go, Lord, what's the what's the the Antichrist? I I struggle calling him the Antichrist because it's such an uh, it's kind of a misnomer a little bit. The Bible only addresses the little horn as the Antichrist once. Now, the word Antichrist is used several times, but when the word Antichrist is used, mostly and most of the time it's used in in the way of a general thing that's against Christ, against Jesus, right? A spirit of Antichrist, those who are anti the kingdom of God, anti the rulership of Jesus, But only once, and it's in a very, I don't want to say very, but somewhat obscure way, the Apostle John references one who he he basically says, hey, you've heard of the Antichrist, that he's coming into the world, but no, there are many Antichrists, right? And so that's the one and only place that the Bible actually uses the term Antichrist to refer to the little horn. Most of the time, Paul doesn't use the name Antichrist. He uses the title man of sin or man of perdition. Daniel uses the term uh, little horn, or sometimes he's called the king, and John, in the book of Revelation, refers to the Antichrist as the false prophet. So I could point to many places where the, the Antichrist isn't called the Antichrist. He's called something else. He's called the man of sin. He's called the son of perdition. He's called the pr- false prophet. He's called the little horn. And so I think I'm going to settle, oh man, I should just settle on calling him the false prophet (laughs) just to be irritating. Um, It's probably actually the most commonly, I'd have to look at the references, how many times he's referred to um, as the little horn. I I, I bet you the false prophet is probably the most. So that might be the one I have to settle on, much to many people's chagrin. So here we are, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. We are in to the text. And the king shall do as he wills. I'm just going to kind of break this this up. We're not going to do a lot of reading today. This is kind of a short passage, and I'm only going to look at a certain portion of it. So I'm just going to kind of walk through this verse by verse and just see where it goes. Verse 36, the king shall do as he wills. This is the king, this is the this is the king that, that Paul will call the son of perdition, the man of sin. And this man of sin 
will do whatever he wants. So whatever he wants to do, that's what he's going to do. That's that's a big statement. That means he's not he's not directed by the the whim of public sentiment. He's not uh, motivated by women. He's not censored by governments or manipulated by public opinion. He does whatever he wants. He does whatever whatever the thing is that he wants to do, he's going to do it. Interesting way to start, right? It says he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. So this king is going to exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Now, we have to skip forward just a little bit to get the bigger impact. In verse 37, it says, He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. So when it says he will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, there's a couple of elements to that. He is going to think he is the best thing humanity has ever produced. He is going to believe he is the culmination of what it means to be a human being. He's the ultimate man. He thinks he's the ultimate man. And so he doesn't really see any human rivals to himself. The only rivals he sees are the gods. The the gods. Those who live in the heavens, who decide the fate of humanity the gods that the nations worship for fertility and for harvest. He will exalt himself against the beliefs in these gods. And he will speak astonishing things. And this echoes Daniel 7 where it talks about the little horn speaking astonishing things. This is the same guy speaking astonishing things against the God of gods. So he's not just speaking and exalting himself against the lower level gods, a.k.a. demons. He's going farther than that. He's speaking astonishing things against the God of gods. He is in his speeches and what he is saying, he is addressing himself and he's addressing himself before and against the creator, the one who created all things, speaking astonishing things against 
the God of gods. This is a very prideful and blasphemous individual who basically gets whatever he wants. The world has been handed to him on a platter, and he is everything that Adam could possibly be. The ultimate representative of fallen humanity. He is the representative that stands, the little horn, who stands against the son of the 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 judgments of the ancient of days. And he speaks astonishing things, so much so that even when Daniel was having that prophetic experience in the courtroom of heaven and he saw the ancient of days enthroned and the books being opened before him and him making judgments and making decrees that would stand forever. In the midst of all this, Daniel is distracted by a voice that he hears. It's the voice of that little horn that was riding, that was upon that beast, speaking astonishing things against God. The little horn's a loudmouth. He's a prideful, loudmouth, smart aleck. And add to all of that, he's an atheist. We'll get into that in a minute. So it says, He will prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. The stage is set. God has set everything in motion. This is the final end time drama that will play out exactly according to plan, exactly according to God's word. This little horn, this man with a big mouth, this man who believes he is better than any God and he's better than his creator, he will prosper. He will do what he wants and he will prosper. Whatever he dreams up, he'll do and he'll do it prosperously. Everything is going to work for this guy. For how long? Well, until the drama is over, until God pulls the curtains shut and says, the show's over, folks. The little horn is sentenced to be consumed along with the beast he was riding on, that he was part of, I should say. I shouldn't say riding on because it's not riding. It's more like he is a part of it. They operate together. The beast, the little horn of Daniel 7, the seven-headed beast, and the false prophet of Revelation 13. Same relationship, same figures. It all plays out exactly the same. You don't have to do any magic or any kind of, any kind of weird um, hermeneutics to figure it out. You've got three players. You've got beast, little horn, and then you've got ten horns. You've got the exact same scenario in Revelation 13. You have seven-headed beast. You have false prophet with the little horns of a lamb. 
and then you have the Ten Kings. Same exact scenario. There's no break. There's no, there's no reason to throw in a hype man that makes no sense, that has no prophecies in any other parts of the Bible. The Antichrist, I, it makes no sense why he needs a magician, hype man person that isn't prophesied anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't make sense. You've got beast, little horn, ten kings, all as one reality. Same scenario, Daniel 7, same exact scenario, Revelation 13. Read it. Look for yourself with new eyes. Not that you've already got it figured out, but asking God, God, show me. I don't have this figured out. So the little horn will prosper. Whatever he, whatever he plans on doing is going to work, and it's going to be really annoying to watch. As saints, you're going to be going like, oh, no, this, this next stupid thing this guy's come up with, that, that's going to work too? Wait a second. Oh, they're going to create some sort of brain-to-computer interface, and that's going to be successful? Oh, fantastic. It's going to be so annoying watching this thing play out because you know exactly where it's heading. You know who scripted it and you know it's God's word that this little horn will prosper until the indignation is accomplished. Until this whole thing plays out exactly like God says and the thing that God has set, the thing that is deep in fallen humanity deep in the heart of Satan, is made manifest to all, and God is glorified. Until that happens, this guy's going to prosper, because this thing is going down exactly like God has said it will go down. So when we watch guys like that, we're pretty sure like, oh, wow, this seems like the guy that we should be watching for, um, and everything is working out for him ex exceedingly well. Um, that's what the Bible says. Bible says he's going to do lots of things and he's going to do he's going to do whatever he wants and he's going to prosper while he does them. He will have an insane amount of prosperity. He will be the richest man who's ever lived by far. He will prosper at a level unprecedented in all of human history. There will be a, such a consolidation of wealth and power and it will fall right in his lap. And he'll be able to do whatever he wants with it. But remember, we're not dealing with a Satanist. We're dealing with the ultimate that fallen humanity can produce. Less scary, in some ways more scary in others. But, you know, if we had a literal Satanist running the show, that would be a, a pretty nightmarish scenario on a bunch of, like, I mean, if it was like a, like a true Satanist, I mean, that could get pretty ugly, right? I mean, Satanists are into weird stuff. Well, I mean, so, I mean, if, if the Antichrist was like Satanist guy, um, that would be actually a pretty disturbing scenario, at least in my view. And so, like, the... The Antichrist as the ultimate that fallen humanity can 
offer or produce the representative of fallen humanity is a scenario where humanity will be onboarded on in, in deceived into this way of thinking. It's not going to go well for Christians, but Christians and those who oppose this coming final culmination of empire, there will be, there, there just won't be any place for us. And it won't, it's not, it's going to be less satanically driven to go kill people satanically, even though there'll be elements of that. It's more of a, um, efficiency, a necessity, a almost kind of a, uh, kind of a mechanism, evolutionary mechanism. And so why do I say all that? I, I just say all of that to say like, hey, this, the, this is the kind of guy we should be watching for, not the cartoonish Satan guy. Another interesting thing to note about this little horn, verse 37, he will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he will magnify himself above all. Right? So, <clears throat> what do we call a person who doesn't pay attention to any God? What do we call a person who ignores the gods or the God of his fathers? What do we call that? Last time I checked, we call that an atheist, right? Someone who doesn't care about religion at all, doesn't care about any gods or God, has no regard for them at all. Well, we see these people, they're all over the place. There's plenty of them. We call them all atheists. These aren't Satanists. These are atheists. Now, one thing to consider is that the church of Satan actually believes they are atheists. So actually Satanists and atheists actually have a lot more in common than people understand because atheism is a key tenet to Satanism. Sounds crazy, right? Cause you're like, well, wait a second. Don't you guys just believe in the devil? And if you believe in the devil and surely you believe in God. No, they believe in the spirit of the devil. They believe in the rebellion of the devil. They believe in independence against any so-called God. And so it's a rebellion against God. And so the, the form that they say it, it takes is atheism. Now, I don't believe the Antichrist, the little horn, will be a Satanist, even though there is a similarity of atheism and Satanism. Because if he was a Satan, just a straight Satanist, which I would think would be uh, too obvious, number one. But if he was this, if he was a straight atheist, then he could be accused of regarding a god because the devil, at some level, is a god, right? A small g god, the way Paul talks about demons as gods. But he doesn't refer to any of them, not the devil, not anyone. He is a straight atheist. That is a key thing to understand about the little horn. He is an atheist.
Now, some people have gone as far to say that the Antichrist is like a homosexual from this passage. I don't see that. Just a quick footnote, not not to get you know too bogged down on this point. But it says, he will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. And so people have taken that and go, oh, that must mean he's a homosexual. No, it just, it just means he rejects the gods of men and he regards the gods of women. The whole spectrum, he, there's no part of it that he is, as he just, he rejects the whole thing. He is an atheist through and through. That I don't. I don't believe it says anything about him being a homosexual. I, you'd have to show me in clearer terms because I think just from just from the read, it doesn't say that. So now there's a, a little twist here that throws a lot of people off because this is a this is an uncomfortable passage for a lot of people because. It doesn't fit what they believe, and so then they're stuck with really bad explanations that they're kind of embarrassed about. But, you know, here's the good news, is if you're stuck with an explanation you're embarrassed about, it's probably because you have the wrong understanding. That if you adopt a better understanding, you can stand with confidence and boldly declare it and boldly defend it and just go, look, it's not my word. It's God's word. All I'm doing is trying to get at what it says. That's it. That's my defense. My defense is going, hey, what does it say here? And here's what it says. Verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, precious stones and costly gifts kind of a strange way to follow up this whole kind of long explanation of how the Antichrist is an atheist, right? Like, here we are. Okay, okay. Let me get this straight, Daniel. So, okay, he will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. Got it. Um, Or to the ones beloved by women. Got that. He will not pay attention to any god, right? Okay, so let me just make sure I got this straight, Daniel. So, you're telling me he doesn't worship any gods of his fathers or, or any gods that the women love. He doesn't worship any god at all. He just rejects the whole thing. So he's solidly an atheist. Is that right? Is that what you're telling me? Yes. That's what I'm telling you. Okay, fantastic. Okay, now verse 38. Now follow me here. But a god that his fathers didn't know, he will honor with gold and silver. Okay, um, great. So... The atheist guy who rejects all gods honors the god of fortresses with silver and gold. With no explanation, you know, just so, so yeah, he doesn't worship any gods, but he'll honor this other god that his fathers didn't know about. What's happening here? What god is this? What is this god of fortresses? This is the god of war. This is the God of war we see come to earth in Revelation 13. You see, there's a dragon in Revelation 12 that tries to destroy the Son of God, tries to wipe out the Jewish people. He is defeated in heaven and he's cast down 
to the earth, and he stands on the, on the shore of the sea. And then in, in Revelation 13, it says that that dragon comes to earth through this beast. The seven-headed dragon becomes the seven-headed beast. And the war that he waged in heaven, he's going to bring that war with him to the earth. He is a god of war, a god of fortresses. This is the god that his fathers didn't know about. Why didn't his fathers know about this god? Well, before the beast comes, there is no indication of his presence, right? So, all through human history, there's been the creator god that, that, that the saints worship. But then there's been a pantheon of, of other gods, you know, with um, in the in the in the in the Grecian pantheon, you've got Zeus and Apollo and Athena. Romans adopted that and changed the name, and and so um, Apollo became Mars, right, the god of war. Those are the gods that we're familiar with. Those are the gods that we know about. But there's coming a day that a god is coming to the earth that we've never experienced before, that we've never believed before. Revelation 13 tells us about this God of war that comes and, and wages the war that it was waging in heaven as the dragon, in the earth as the beast. The seven-headed beast of Revelation 13 is a God of war. And this is the God of fortresses that the little horn or false prophet honors with silver and gold. You see, if you get that mixed up, if you're thinking like, oh, wait, no, 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 the seven-headed beast, that's the Antichrist and the empire and the time frame and the seven and the other kings that come before him and the cocktail of this and that that can change at any moment's notice. Who knows what what it actually is? No, no, no. That's kind of the Antichrist-ish thing. And then the false prophet is, well, that's his hype man. That's his, um, that's his magician guy that, you know, everybody needs a magician guy, right? Well, wait, if you get that wrong, then you all of a sudden you just go, you're reading in, in, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, and you're thinking, hey, wait a second. Why would the Antichrist, who's not supposed to worship anything and only exalt himself against everything, why, who is this other god of fortresses? Well, there's a lot of bad explanations about who the God of fortresses is. A couple of things to note about the God of fortresses. It says that the little horn will honor this God with the wealth of the world. And I believe when it says that the Antichrist will honor the God of war, the God of fortresses with the wealth of the world, that literally means he will hand this God of fortresses the wealth of this world. This man will have consolidated so much wealth and power that will fall in his lap because he will prosper. Anything he wants to do will work out. 
He'll become the most the wealthiest, most powerful man in history. He'll create a, an entire financial system with his technologies, with his, with his worldly insight, and with this God-ordained prosperity that will be upon him. He will create a financial system that he will be able to hand, literally hand into the power of this God of fortresses. It says in verse 39 that he will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. So the things that the little horn will want to do will become possible with the help of this foreign god, this god of war. This is the relationship of the beast and the false prophet. This mechanical reality that we see in Daniel chapter 7 of a thing with terrifying thing with iron teeth and bronze claws is the same beast that we see in Revelation 13. The little horn that we see speaking great things with the eyes of a man is the false prophet of Revelation 13 who has horns like a lamb, little horns. These are the two realities that are coming. It's not just the guy that we need to be watching for. We need to be watching for this other thing that Daniel says is a ter terrifying beast with iron teeth and bronze claws. And John says has seven heads. It is the beast and the little horn, the beast and the false prophet that will work together as in unity as a representative representation of the ultimate rebellion and confederacy against God, the combining of the human rebellion and the demonic rebellion coming to earth, joining, becoming one, defying God, and God will crush it to powder and it will blow away in the wind. Now, I'm probably not going to be able to get into the relationship of beast and false prophet in depth the way I would like to. I'm going to have to save that for when I actually address Revelation chapter 13, but I promise you, if you're like, hey, wait a second, you know, this is an outrage. The false prophet says that he makes sure that the earth will worship the the beast, and that means, you know, he's disqualified to be the false prophet. I've got an answer for that. I've got, I've got, I've got, a, I think I've got a pretty solid set of answers for that. So hopefully you don't just dismiss me right out of hand because I'm not addressing that specific issue right now. I'll get into that later. 
Um, for now, I guess, you know, I just, I, I should just do one more episode on the book of Daniel where I kind of can um, sum up everything. I do want to address uh, Daniel chapter 9 just a little bit um, where it talks about the 70 weeks and it talks about um, the Antichrist making a strong covenant with many. I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on that. And I do want to spend a little bit of time on Daniel uh, chapter 12 um, as well. And I'm not going to be able to get into all of that today, but I think I could probably wrap it up the next episode. Just kind of just kind of put a bow tie on our time in Daniel. So just to kind of recap what Daniel says about this Antichrist. It says that this guy's going to do whatever he wants. It says he's going to think he's the best thing ever. He's going to have a really big mouth and he's going to run it against God and he's going to prosper. Whatever he does is going to work for him really well. So much so that he's going to become very wealthy. The most wealthy, I'm, I'm just adding this, but this is the reality. He'll become the most wealthy, most powerful man in history. And he will reject, disregard all gods, the God of gods. He will be an atheist. However, there will become there will come a new God on the scene that his fathers didn't know about, that he will honor with wealth, with the wealth of this world. He will hand over the wealth of this world to this God of fortresses. And not only that, that God of fortresses, that God of war will help the Antichrist to get what he wants. This is the combination of beast and horns. This is one reality. This is Satan, the beast, along with the little horn, the ultimate Adam, fallen Adam. The ultimate true humanity is found in Christ Jesus alone. And that is where our identity, that is where our hope that is where our life originate. It's from him and him alone. And it's only through his power and only through his great grace that we are held firm and that he promises to bring this thing to pass exactly the way he has decreed. And he invites us to join there aren't a whole lot of good options. Best option is to join with. And that's my appeal to you today, that you would join with Jesus in his work in your life, in his work in the world around you. Join in the work of Jesus. Proclaim the gospel. Minister to all, to the rich, to the poor, to, the, to those who are lost and on the brink of death who need Jesus, work with Jesus, cooperate with his plan. He will bring you through in everything that he has promised. I guess I'm just going to kind of end it there today. I, I'm hoping that wasn't too rambling. It's a little bit of a difficult passage to um, handle in a thorough way, but it's this very important passage to understand 
who the Antichrist is and how this thing looks like it's going to be playing out. So, Saints, thanks for joining with, with me today. I hope you join me next time. I'm Peter Herger, and this is the Babylon Singularity Podcast. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you, and I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.